What's up, everyone? Welcome to my podcast, Greg Rambles. My name is Greg Johnson. I'm a musician, teacher, writer. I wear a lot of hats in life without ever actually wearing a hat. If you don't know anything about me, you can go to gregjohnsonjazz.com and it'll tell you everything you need to know. I've realized over the past year that I have a lot of ideas to share and stories to tell. I don't have any political agenda and I don't want to turn this into a musicians-only shop talk podcast. I do want to make the world a better place and try and make you guys laugh a little bit. I'll try to keep everything as family-friendly as possible, and I'll definitely warn you in advance if I'm going to say something obscene or controversial, but that probably won't happen. In general, I'll try to be conscious of all sides of an opinion without pushing my own. And I'm sure my boss is listening. In fact, I know he is. And here's how I know. So I was in London with Saint Motel. It was about a year and a half ago. You know, boo booty boo booty boo boo that's Saint Motel. And I'm playing saxophone, by the way. I'm a saxophonist. And we're having lunch. This is the day before the gig, I think. We were playing at Dingwalls in London. And we were on the Thames River. Must have been noon, maybe a little bit afternoon. And I was completely new to Instagram and Twitter, various forms of social media. And I think I actually had someone helping me with social media at that point. And I asked the band, you know, can I... Can I take a picture with you guys? Post it on social media? And they were cool about it, so they let me take a picture. And in the back of the picture, the drummer of same motel is just flipping two birds to the camera, two big middle fingers. And I took what I could get, you know, and I threw it up on Instagram and Twitter and said, on tour with same motel. And about an hour later, I get an email from the principal of this new school that I got hired to work at uh, at the end of the summer, starting at the end of the summer. And he had copied the photo from Instagram and Twitter and attached it to the email, which I thought was the funniest part. But then I realized, man, it's, it's noon in London, and California's like eight hours behind or something, so this guy must either get up really early or just not sleep or have some kind of social media alert on all the teachers. Uh, but anyway, he attached that picture and said, could you please take it down? And, you know, I, I understood, so I took it down. And uh, Great guy, though, so I know you're listening, Matt. Welcome to my podcast. People that know me really well think I'm pretty quiet, so I'm going to make a New Year's resolution to be more gregarious. So I'm sitting here on my couch, Marin, California. I have a cup of Italian roast espresso, and it's a lovely morning, New Year's Eve. Trying to make it comfortable enough for me to ramble for however long this podcast lasts, so I'll try my best. Don't get your expectations up. So what's on your mind, Greg? Well, first thing is, I feel like I'm getting old. 
you know, I'm going to hover around 30 years old for the next 10 years. And then one day I'm just going to look 60. But uh, I feel like I'm getting fat. Not fat, but out of shape. You know, I'm a pretty thin person and my metabolism has been pretty good to me. But I don't always eat the way that I should. And a couple years ago, I was in a grocery store and I used to just go buy these Belgian chocolate cakes to eat when I got home. They're really good. And I would just go to the cake aisle and stare at the cakes and uh, usually buy something. They're like nine bucks and take it home and eat a bunch of it. It would last two and a half days and then I'd go get another one and... One day I was there just staring at the cakes, you know, oh, cake. And the plastic cover on this one cake was reflecting my face back to me. So I was like looking at myself, looking at a cake. But then I realized I wasn't actually looking at myself. I was looking through the plastic at another blonde guy that was staring across the aisle uh, at the cakes and I looked up and this guy was you know six one blonde he was just like me but he was like three of me guy must have been pushing 400 pounds big dude and I kind of realized at that point this guy's doing the same thing as me eating these cakes at the same rate I better stop doing this if I want to stay in shape so Anyway, my eyes are also going bad. Uh, I have this job now. I direct four big bands, and I'm staring at these tiny musical scores all day. With you know, it has 18 parts on it, and it's on a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And I'm just kind of staring at them, you know, directing traffic, making the music better. But last year, which was my first year on this job, I started getting these headaches and uh, I would come home and sit down to watch TV and realize I couldn't read the titles. And then once I selected something on Netflix, I'd be watching it and realize I was squinting. So I went and got glasses and it was a very weak prescription. It helped. The headaches went away. But now uh, I think I need a new prescription so, two days ago, I started rehearsing for this gig that I'll tell you about, and the music is just insane, so I realized I needed to go get a pencil out of my case, which was like 10 feet away. I turned around to go walk to it. I wanted to get back as soon as possible, so I kind of quickly walked and then got the pencil, came back to my stand, and I started breathing heavier. I got winded from a 10-foot dash to my case. So for these reasons, I'm assuming that it's not going to be long before I start saying stuff that... Uh, what do old people say? Let me look it up. Let's see. Words that old people say. All right. There's actually a website for this. I haven't got the foggiest. Well, I definitely use that one. That's using the old bean. <laughs> You're looking very smart. That's a fine kettle of fish. 
I gotta use that one. <laughs> Don't pass up a chance to pee. I feel like that's just for everybody. Anyway, you guys hearing a buzz? I'm hearing a buzz right now. Anyway, so this rehearsal that we did was for the John Hadamia group, and John is just this amazing young, young meaning mid-twenties. Uh, he's just this amazing trombone player. He lives in L.A. He's from up in the Bay. And we played a gig in Davis, California last night at Oddfellows Hall. And, you know, we walk in and there's this big kind of throne style chair on the stage. There's no mics. That was kind of the only old school thing about it. But for the most part, it was, it was a bunch of young L.A. musicians, all with something to prove and kind of the new guys on the scene and they've all got a, a new sound and it's just really different playing in a band like that with all young people um, it's it's a really interesting experience because it's I would say it's modern but there's other you know modern musical situations that I've been in where I didn't feel like I was playing like that or a part of something like that and probably the best Example of that is the Bob Mincer Big Band, which I play in. You know, I'll go down to L.A., and I'll play with these guys who are mostly studio people. So the music is really modern, you know, especially if you've listened to Bob's last project, the, the Get Up, the James Brown tribute, super funky and a lot of notes. and um, All the players are amazing, but it's super clean, precise, um, this was not quite the case, at least for me, with John's music. It's just so energetic and bombastic um, that you lose a little bit of the precision, but you compensate with energy. And uh, there is definition to it. I remember I used to play these parties in Los Angeles with various bands. And, um, you know, I would kind of feed off the energy of the crowd and I would feel like, yeah, I'm killing it because everyone's just freaking out. And then inevitably a video of it would appear on Facebook or YouTube or whatever. And I would listen to what I was playing and just feel so terrible about it because it, it was just random. Just kind of like, ah! I wasn't really saying anything. I was just screaming through my horn. And um, that is not the case with John's band or John's music either. It's... You know, there there is a precision factor, but there's also just this energy. And it's been a while since I've played with a band where every single musician can just light it up at any time. And it's not to say that I don't work with great musicians. You know, I work with really great high school kids, but we have a lot of rehearsals and they're still figuring things out with sound and figuring out how to improvise. Um, this gig had one really short rehearsal and then we played some of the craziest new music um, I also play in a big band up here uh, it's my big band and I write all the music so it's not crazy you know because I I know what I'm going to play generally but anyway John's music is kind of somewhere between daft punk 
the Brecker brothers, and there's a little bit of smooth in there. Part of the modern thing is there's this like kind of smooth inflection. Uh, but one thing that was really cool about last night is uh, John has no problem just taking any music and making a crazy arrangement of it. So we closed with NSYNC's Merry Christmas, you know. It's a wonderful feeling, but I've been up to the ceiling. It's that time of year. Um, I have perfect pitch, but that doesn't help me sing. Anyway, I'll probably edit that out. But uh, we played NSYNC's Merry Christmas, and he just arranged this high-energy instrumental version of it. So if you haven't checked out John Hadamia, do it. He's an amazing composer, trombonist. Wynton Marsalis named him as one of the new big-deal kids of this generation, and now he's not a kid anymore. He's a professional. He's doing the Monk Institute. And he's just cleaning up in Los Angeles, one of the best guys around. So what else? Sports. Okay, so I was driving home from this gig, which happened yesterday, and I was listening to Sports Talk Radio, and they were talking about how the Memphis Grizzlies beat the Oklahoma City Thunder by 34 points. I think it must have been two days ago. And I heard that, and I was like, that's very out of character. The OKC is just killing it right now because Russell Westbrook is just getting to that next level, that Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant superstar level. And it's really impressive. It kind of tells you how good this guy really is. But anyway, so Memphis beats OKC by 34 points, and I was like, wow. And then they started talking about how Russell Westbrook got ejected in the third quarter. It's probably early in the third quarter. And to me, I was more impressed by that, the fact that he's so good that when he gets thrown out of the game, his team just tanks. Um, it also it just speaks to how crazy his stats are because he's averaging a triple-double. And for people who don't know what a triple-double is, it's when you get more than 10 somethings in three different categories. So like 10 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists. Um, usually it's those three categories. There's also steals and blocks. And um, I wonder if everyone's ever gotten a triple-double with blocks or steals. Let's, I don't know, how do I find that? Has anyone ever blocked more than 10 shots in an NBA game? Okay. List of NBA single-game block leaders. So Manute Ball had 15 blocks in 1986. That guy was 7'6". I remember watching him. Shaquille O'Neal had 15 in 1993 in a game. Daryl Dawkins, Manute Ball, Sean Bradley had 13 blocks. He was 7-7. But there's, there's a very small list of people that have done this. 
Hakeem Lajuan, David Robinson, Dikembe Mutombo. Um, those are like the greatest shot blockers of all times. But anyway, I knew Russell Westbrook was a great scorer because he's always been in the conversation for scoring titles at the end of the year. But to average a triple-double every game, you know, the, the assist bracket is pretty impressive because the team just tanked when he left, meaning they had no offense, you know, and to get an assist, you got to pass it to a guy and then that guy scores and clearly no one was scoring. So it's, he must be making really good passes for obvious looks at the basket. And then he got like 12 rebounds. He's averaging or something. And, He's not the biggest guy, so he, he's just this physical beast of a person. Um, he's cleaning up this year. He's my pick for MVP. Then last year's MVP, Steph Curry, moved from being the number one option on his team to the number three option on his team. And um, People say he's number two, but he's really number three. Klay Thompson's the number two because he doesn't, pass the ball when he gets it he always shoots so that takes away touches from Steph Curry and um, now Kevin Durant's on, on the team he moved from OKC to the Warriors and if I'm the coach Steve Kerr I would be a little bit worried because it's you know they go deep in the playoffs and Steph Curry has kind of proven that he can get the team to the finals multiple years in a row and Kevin Durant, who's now the number one option, also a former MVP and a superstar. Um, he's been to the playoffs, but he's never gotten a championship like Steph Curry has. So I would be a little bit worried. they got to figure that out. All right, so let me just say ahead of time that I hate politics and in the schools, teachers are encouraged not to tell their political opinions, which I agree with. You shouldn't be preaching political opinions in front of kids. And, uh, but I do have some opinions, and I want to share them, and I don't see it as a political opinion. I just see it as an opinion, and I don't associate with parties. I hate the Republicans versus Democrats. I think it's really short-sighted. You know, it's it's like a allegiance to a team in sports. You know, people people would criticize me when I was really into Miami Heat a couple of years ago. They're like, "Oh, well, you're not really a Heat fan. You know, you just like it cuz LeBron is on it." And yeah, it's true. I like LeBron. He's what made that team great. You know, as soon as he came, they made it to the finals. And then when he left, they didn't even make the playoffs. So, yeah, I'm going to root for greatness because he's making teams work. You know, he's bringing them to the finals. Um, why wouldn't I root for Miami when he was on the team? Team is just a jersey. And it's the people that make it what it is. It's people that make it great. So... I only care about relationships between people, progress in our community, and consciousness about problems that people have and how we're going to make things better for everyone. You socialist.
I'll get back to that. Anyway, politics. Um, I think the current party system is ruining the U.S. because people are just blindly associating with parties and not listening to each other and considering other ideas. And our latest election is the perfect example of that. And it's, you know, since I've been politically conscious for, you know, 10, 15 years, the U.S. has always hovered right around the 50-50 mark in elections. You know, someone will win it by a couple percentage points, and it, it's usually 50-50. It's half of America's Republican, half is Democrats. And, you know, how, how the Democrats won the popular vote this year is amazing to me because the primary was so close between Hillary and Bernie, uh, probably because people in the U.S. wanted to address really specific problems about equality and the economy. And, you know, Hillary won the primaries, and there was this united 50% behind the Republican candidate and then a scattered 50% on the Democratic side. So I, I don't see why we didn't see this Republican victory, you know. Anyway, you socialist. That's, my dad likes to call me a socialist when I go home to Pennsylvania. And yeah, I think uh, the idea of socialism is great. And I'm willing to pay a little bit more in taxes so that other people don't have to worry about life. And, you know, if people lose their job, they can have that safety net to fall back on. I think Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid are all great. And European countries are using aspects of socialism to great success. So if there's a model out there that's doing well, why wouldn't you consider it? And, you know, obviously European countries are a lot smaller and the money goes farther, but, you know, there's also people that are always going to play the system and take advantage of things. And uh, I think that happens everywhere. But anyway, I like the idea. And whenever someone calls me a socialist, I'll take it as a compliment. But my dad is always like, you socialist. And so it's a compliment. Anyway, my dad's given me some weird compliments over the year. Um, we usually disagree on political things, but I remember must have been five or six years ago, I had long hair, like shoulder-length hair, and I was really concerned about what my dad would think because I hadn't been back to Pennsylvania in a little bit and he hadn't seen how long my hair got and you know he's a 20-year marine veteran both my siblings were army uh, so everyone has short hair uh, or controlled hair and anyway I, I had this shoulder length hair that I put up um, tied it back and you know I was really concerned my dad would you know so I went home, and, and he saw it, and he said, you look like a samurai. Looks good. <laughs> I thought that was, that was the funniest thing. Anyway, I'll get back to being just a little bit political. 
um, I thought it was funny because I stopped at the grocery store last night after the gig, and there's a magazine called the National Enquirer. I'm sure you've all seen it. They have those bogus headlines, and one of the headlines, this was a magazine last night, but one of the headlines was proof that Obama was born outside the U.S., and I read that. I was like, what are they trying to do? The guy has 20 days left in office. Are they going to ruin his, trying to ruin his presidency or whatever? Um, I, I thought it was crazy. Like, why are you still doing that? Is that going to sell copies? But I, I think Obama's done a great job. You know, initially he was meeting with members of Congress from both parties, trying to get people to agree on stuff and pass good legislation. Unemployment's way down and the economy's up. And he, you know, maybe the, the healthcare program is controversial, but it comes from a really good place. He wanted people to be able to afford healthcare without getting turned away. You know, people with pre- pre-existing conditions were getting turned away by employers' health insurance because it was too expensive for them. And Obama put a system in place where, you know, people can get that health care. And in a general sense, people came together to elect him. You know, he, he had a bunch of people, a record amount of voters, um, come out to support him. And he maintained good relationships with foreign leaders. And I think that's super important. The first time I went to Europe was when George Bush, um, George W. Bush was president. And Europeans can always tell who the Americans are and who the tourists are. And there's, you know, America has an image. And I... I would walk around and just feel people looking at me knowing that I was this American kid and there's a certain amount of contempt for Americans. But I've been back to Europe a couple times and last year I felt different. Granted, I dress a lot better now than when I was a high school kid. Uh, I think I look a lot better. So I kind of fit in with the Europeans a little bit more. They're a little more stylish than we are. But I just felt more comfortable and more accepted in general. But anyway, Obama got a lot done while these kind of racist naysayers tried to pick him apart and block his efforts to make the country a better place the whole time. Whatever. You socialist. Um, you know, it's just become a term for someone who wants to make things better. So I'm guilty. He's the first black president. He did a great job. And now we're moving on to something else. You know, this was always going to be a historic election with either the first women president or the first orange president. And I moved to change the term POTUS to FOP for first orange president. Hashtag FOP. Anyway, I'll give the FOP the benefit of the doubt until he does something stupid, probably on Twitter. Um, but here's how weird the National Enquirer is. They post 
crazy headlines about Obama and Angelina Jolie, but then their Trump headlines are like, Trump saves U.S. town in West Virginia right next to like Loch Ness Monster found and killed, feeds entire village. So I think we're in for a long few years. Um, anyway, I hope Trump does some good and I'll give him a chance. And if we can mend our relationship with Russia and clean up this Israel-Palestine stuff, I'll be impressed. And I saw a map recently of the Israeli settlements, the thing that the UN just voted was illegal. And there were two maps. There was when Israel was established and Israel now. And it, the maps were pretty much the complete opposite of each other. So the first one was in the late 40s, and it was Palestine with speckles of Israeli settlements, and now it's the exact opposite. It's, you know, it's Israel with little speckles of Palestine, and it's such a complex conflict that I'm weary of anyone who takes a side without looking at it from the other perspective. So the Palestinians feel bullied, and they feel like they're being pushed out of a land that they've occupied for thousands of years. And Israel is pretty much fighting for a right to exist in this volatile region of the world. There's no clear solution, but I hope we can work something out. And I think music is a great means to do that. And there's been a couple of several, you know, music initiatives around the world and regions of conflict. You look at Northern Ireland where there's Catholics and there's Protestants and uh, unionists and separatists, although I don't know how that's working now with the EU thing and Brexit. Um, but anyway, they, you know, they have their own highways and they have their own convenience stores that if you're Catholic, you don't go on a Protestant highway, or if you're Protestant, you don't go into a Catholic convenience store. And I read a study that was talking about, um, the only time I shouldn't generalize and say the only time, but one of the only successful times that people of both kind of sects come together uh, is, is in the pubs at night when they're playing music. And it, when they're playing music with each other, they both come from the same background. They're totally cool, coexisting. But then during the day, you get all the violence and strangeness. Um, also, Burundi, uh, Africa, there's those two tribes that are always at war and killing each other and um, you know, there's, there's different styles of music, um, that are native to each tribe that are actually, they come from the same place. So at some point in history, the two tribes, uh, diverged from each other, but back in the day they came from the same spot and their music was the same. So there's music initiatives in place to get back to that, bring people together. So anyway, that political thing went on for longer than I thought. Let's answer some questions.
All right, questions. Sorry, I had to pause there and put on a coat. It's freezing. Unbelievable. New Year's Eve. This apartment is frigid. All right, some... They're cute. Cute questions on Facebook. Um, maybe now, now that people have heard some of my rambles, you can ask me anything about politics. doesn't have to be about me. But it looks like these ones are. So Mike David asks... When did you realize that saxophone was more than just an in instrument? It was your life. Um, I don't actually think about the saxophone that way. It's just been this thing that's allowed me to travel the world and get employment. But when I'm playing it, I'm not actually thinking about the instrument but I guess at one time I did so your question is when did you realize the saxophone was more than just an instrument um, I think in high school we did these festivals like district regional all state band and uh, I started doing well at them to the extent where I kind of realized that uh, I, I can do some things on this instrument that none of these other people can and maybe that's what I'm meant to do and you know I, I really like to do it and it was it was definitely a source of conflict with my parents because they just I don't think they knew anyone who went into music and made a living so uh became a thing, but I would say high school is when I realized that the saxophone was more than just an instrument. I like how you phrase that. All right, second question. P.S. Edmonston, which is the mom of the girl that I took to prom many, many years ago, says, can you talk about your roots and evolution or how you started out in a small town and ended up in this large metro area. Um, well, my journey to L.A. is actually a long, long story. I'm sure I'll probably talk about it in a couple of other podcasts. I can definitely talk about my roots and evolution pretty quickly. So I got into the saxophone, and I think... The first album that I had was Duke Ellington. It was either called The Essentials or Play Standards or something like that. And it it was the Duke Ellington band with all the classic people. So like Johnny Hodges and Ben Webster and Harry Connie, Carney. Um, that was a mix between Harry Carney and Harry Connick Jr., which are two very different people. Um, but anyway, I had that CD, and that I got that in 6th or 7th grade. My mom got it for me because I was doing a report on Duke Ellington. And the second album that I had was The Best of David Sanborn, which is very different than Duke Ellington, um, to say the least. And those were the only two CDs that I had for a couple of years, so I just... 
absorbed all the information. And now I, I look back on that and I'm like, wow, those were the right CDs to get this career, this interest in music kind of started. Um, because I played a lot of sessions in Los Angeles. I played on a lot of albums where people asked me, you know, can you sound like David Sanborn or someone of that genre, you know, kind of smooth or contemporary, like got a lot of Michael Brecker, Bob Mincer, a little bit of Chris Potter, although that's different. Um, so those were the recordings. My roots, uh, I took lessons, I think, starting in ninth or 10th grade, maybe earlier. I don't know. Uh, but I had a really good teacher that he had me do these etudes and get my technique up. His name was Steve Bowman. And I started learning all my scales and found that I had kind of some facility on the instrument. And I practiced more than anyone I knew, at least until I was a senior in high school. But um, I practiced between four and eight hours a day almost every day from my first day of high school through my last day of college. So I felt like I really built up my technique and my connection to the instrument. And that's a long time. That's, you know, eight to ten years of a lot of practice per day. But um, I started studying with another saxophonist in, in State College, Pennsylvania, Rick Hirsch, who... He was less technical in his teaching and more organic. So we would sit in his basement and we would just play duets for a half an hour. And that, that taught me so much. It, it taught me how to listen to something and respond or really play in a more compositional way than just uh, running scales and chords and doing all the stuff that the books tell you to do. And I think specifically that exercise stays with me today. It's, it's a big part of what I do and how I think. And Rick Hirsch actually came in to do a concert with my, my kids at MSA this year. And during the small group period, we did a duet and... I guess it, it just brought back so many memories for him that I saw a little tear. It was cute, you know, but uh, it's powerful stuff. It was a lot of memories for me, too. So uh, from State College, I went to, I was in Philly for a little bit um, when I realized that Penn State wasn't really the music that I was looking for. I was a classical saxophone major, which is cool. I, I learned a lot about technique with uh, David Stambler, who's the professor there, and voicing, and my high notes got really good, and, you know, I don't want this to be a talk and shop podcast, but anyway, played a little bit in Philly, did some smooth jazz, you know, got back to my David Sanborn roots, and then uh, finished my undergrad at Northern Colorado, where 
I learned how to sight read just anything at any tempo. And I got my doubles better, so I played flute and clarinet. And uh, then I moved to L.A. and, you know, played a lot of different crazy gigs. Uh, I'll tell that story maybe in a upcoming podcast. I think this is going pretty well. We'll do another one. Why not? Um, so that's that's kind of my evolution, and you know now I'm teaching. And one other thing that was really important to me, going going back to Rick Hirsch, is he allowed me to play in his big band when I was in high school. So I was just this starry-eyed kid, and he invited me to the American Ale House, which is where they played first Tuesday of every month, and. Uh, at that time, they were called the Valley Jazz Orchestra. Now they're called the Zero Point Big Band. But uh, I played Barry Sax in that, and I learned so much from playing with people that were better than me. And now that I'm here in Marin County, I have my own big band, Greg Johnson Contemporary Big Band, and play kind of all over North Bay and East Bay and uh, wherever I also, you know, call some of my high school kids to play with the professionals that are around and like to mix people. So affected my evolution as a player and a teacher. You know, Rick Hirsch, he's a very forward-looking guy. So hope that answers that question. Samuel G. Williams asks me, can you discuss the maximum efficiency ratio of shrimp to games of racquetball played? Um, this may confuse a lot of you guys, my listeners. Let me explain. So uh, I used to play racquetball with Samuel G. Williams, and that was actually the last time I lost uh, was to him, and that was seven years ago. 2010. So I'm on a seven-year winning streak. I've played quite a few games, and I've won all of them, but he was the last person to beat me. And he wants me to explain the maximum efficiency ratio of shrimp to games of racquetball played. And it's, it's really simple. The story is I'm allergic to shrimp, not in the breakout and hives way, but in the gastrointestinal way. And I found that if I loaded up on a bunch of frozen grocery store shrimp and then played him, uh, <laughs> I would kind of smoke him out in a way. So there is no maximum efficiency ratio. It's just eat a bunch of shrimp, play some racquetball. And that is that. Anyway, um, Hope to answer some more of your questions in the future. You can ask me about anything. So if you're struggling in life and you want my advice for whatever it's worth, or if you have a question, doesn't have to be about me. It could be about places or politics or people. Um, I feel like I have a little bit of perspective, so ask away. Thanks for listening, and I think this is the perfect time to wrap up this podcast. So 
tune in. I'm going to try and post these every Monday. And I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.